Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum with your host, Matt Warhoover. So this is our second installment of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center Department of Cardiac Surgery Faculty Forum. And with us today is going to be Dr. Hoffman. Uh, you all know Dr. Jordan Hoffman from the last uh, presentation. I'd like to introduce him very quickly. He was born in New Orleans. It's funny, my son was born in New Orleans, raised in Los Angeles, California. I actually worked in Los Angeles, California. I think you've been following me. Undergraduate degree from right here in Houston at Rice University. Attended medical school at Tulane. Back to New Orleans. You like New Orleans, Dr. Hoffman, apparently. Um, you received simultaneously an MPH from Tulane University uh, School of Public Health, as well as your surgery training done at University of Colorado in Denver. Did you know Dr. Harkin when he was there, Alden Harkin? In Colorado? Yes, at Denver. He, he had left before I came. He, he did? was in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I worked, I worked with him. I used to be in Colorado as well. Uh, your clinical <clears throat> interests, of course, include end-stage heart disease, and lung disease, pulmonary hypertension, mechanical circulatory support and devices, as well as aortic surgery. That's always fun. Uh, your research interests involve studying heart failure physiology in patients undergoing LVAD placement. In fact, I think that's the topic of this discussion today is on VADs and novel therapies to extend the viability of donor hearts, something you guys do there at Vanderbilt incredibly well, because I know you have you achieved the highest number of transplants in the world. Uh, I'm assuming you're still at that level. So uh, it's pretty impressive what you've been able to accomplish there at Vanderbilt. Um, the, my partner in crime for this program is Matt Warhoover, sitting off there to the uh, left of your screen. Matt graduated, uh, interestingly enough, from Vanderbilt University with a master's in healthcare management. He's, learned, he's earned his master's in perfusion science from Milwaukee School of Engineering. So Matt, you can work in New York. I cannot, because I don't have a master's in perfusion. Matt is current associate chief of perfusion at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And he is the lead for the perfusion-based ECMO service line, performing nearly 100 ECMO patients and 20,000 ECMO hours annually. That's an impressive number. Your career started in uh, CT surgery as a CT anesthesia technician uh, in 1997. That's interesting. And continued your education, started a perfusion career at Midwest Heart Institute in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And in 2005, Matt moved to perfusion as supervisor for McAllen Perfusion Associates in McAllen, Texas. I can't believe that you were down there. And in 2016, became associate chief of perfusion at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. So there is Dr. Hoffman, Jordan Hoffman, and Matt Warhoover's bio. And we have a new participant today. And Matt, I'm going to kind of toss it over to you because I didn't get uh, your, 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 uh, your partner's uh, bio or anything. So would, if you would introduce him for me, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, John Poland is our uh, center star here in the middle. Uh, no introductions needed, but I will go through a brief history. Uh, John is, uh, will, will graduate here uh, from the Vanderbilt uh, Perfusion School in about a week and a half. Um, we were lucky enough to land him 
Uh, he'll become an employee of Vanderbilt here shortly thereafter uh, graduation. Um, John was an anesthesia tech like myself. Uh, he was here for uh, 10 years prior. Uh, so John's been at this institution for 12 years running. He's a staple at Vanderbilt. Um, and uh, he, before that, he did his understudies at University of Tennessee, uh, Knoxville. Uh, he's a, uh, born and bred in Tennessee, and we're glad that uh, he's sticking around and staying here with us. Well, John, uh, John's well, an excellent asset to our group. Well, welcome. I mean, I really appreciate you doing this today. Um, I think it's really remarkable, you know, that a lot of, you know, this is maybe not for everyone, but it's, I think it's really good for your professional development. Matt and Dr. Hoffman are kind of naturals at all of this, um, but uh, you can learn a lot from them. However, I do want to mention, we are hiring out here. So in case things don't work out with you and Matt, please don't hesitate hey, Joe, to- Joe, your mic's picking up a little bit. Joe, your mic's- Oh, but, did you hear me? Yeah, when you're talking oh. about- Yeah, when you're trying to recruit John, it breaks oh, I, up. <laughs> okay. Sorry that joke. So you're just lying to me. Okay. I also wanted to. I that was good. You can help. I also wanted to mention to you all that uh, that uh, your program, the last program, has been viewed well over two thousand times now. The very first inaugural, and uh, we are getting comments from people on an international level. And actually, Dr. Hoppen, you'll appreciate this. A lot of surgeons from the uh, from our international colleagues have been reaching out to us on LinkedIn and asking when is your next program. We're getting them all the information they need, but uh, we have we have really been impressed with the amount of positive feedback we got from our first faculty forum, and I'm really excited about this next one being even better. So. I, the thing is catching on really fast. Usually it takes like, you know, five or six programs. But uh, I think that, you know, Vanderbilt name uh, and your name and Matt as well, you know, in the perfusion department um, in a, a, a microcosm of, of what we all do is uh, really speaks well. And uh, I appreciate you all doing this for us. I think it's really going to help these programs grow. So thank you. We like being here. Yep, happy to do it, Joe. Okay, so um, are we going to go forward with Dr. Hoffman? Do you guys want to say anything before you start? Well, I think we can present a case first, and then we can talk about LVADs in general and the management and the perfusion aspect of things. Sounds good. And, and you've got John's uh, PowerPoint presentation, so he'll just guide you through uh, uh, the talk. Perfect. Okay, so we'll go ahead and we'll throw John's slides up. There it is, and we're ready to go. And John, you need to put, you're a, you're a clinical perfusionist. Now, you're not certified yet, but you need to put John Poland, comma, CP, and then when you're certified, you can put the CCP. Well, we're still holding out. He's got 10 days left before graduation. Yes, I'll take care of that. Just graduate him early. <laughs> we're going to remediate him now. <laughs> so... This case I did actually with Dr. Hoffman uh, about a month and a half ago. It was a heart rate three on a reduced ergonomy. If you want to go ahead and go to the next page. A uh, little bit of HMP on this patient. It's a 49-year-old male. He uh, presented with a shortness of breath and history of ICD. He had a cabbage tongue form back in 2008. He's got some hypertension, some atrial fib, hyperlipidemia, GERD, and he was in end-stage end renal, end-stage heart failure. 
he was denied a heart transplant due to tobacco use and marijuana use as well. You mind if I go ahead? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what we'll do is I'll I'll speak up a little bit as we go from slide to slide. So this is a patient who, when we evaluate patients for a heart transplant, um, because we do so many here, we we like to offer heart transplant because we think it's a definitive therapy. It's a good bioventricular solution to heart failure. Uh, problems, um, but there are some patients who don't meet criteria, and one of them is ongoing tobacco and drug use. And you can see here that this patient um, was a tobacco user and was using marijuana, uh, and so he was denied for heart transplant. But we felt that, uh, you know, sometimes when we deny people, we say, well, maybe we can bridge you with medications for six months while you, you know, you have a six-month period where you're not smoking and not doing anything else. Um, but sometimes people just too sick to do that, and the next best option is an LVAD. And so that's how we came to the decision to do an LVAD on this patient. He also, incidentally, had lost a leg uh, earlier in life. I think it was a traumatic accident, and one of the things we look at is how well you're able to, to rehabilitate and walk around, and he was actually quite good with his prosthesis, so there were no concerns there. Um, and then the other thing is he had had a cabbage in the past, and one of the things we like to look for before we... Um, embark on an LVAD or any sort of reduced sternotomy is what the graphs are doing. Uh, and this guy's particular graph was a lima to LAD and it was open. And those two things are important. You know, normally I don't care about, uh, you know, bypass graphs that are, that are already occluded. Um, and, uh, you know, when we're putting an LVAD in, it's almost taking over the function of the left heart and occasionally, you know, very distally and apically we'll, we'll end up occluding part of the LAD with our sutures. So that's not a huge deal, but if they've got open grafts, you want to try and preserve those um, because you know you can get into trouble, especially if they've got an open right coronary graft, like a saphenous vein to the right coronary, and if that gets occluded during your reduced sternotomy or if it gets ligated or, or injured in any way, you can have some real bad uh, RV failure. So you want to occlude as many, I mean, you want to um, preserve as many of the um, bypass grafts as possible if they're uh, still open. If they're not, then usually I'll just ligate them and get them out of the way anyway. So, uh, so that's most that's most of his uh, pre-op workup. Next slide. Yeah. So the echo showed a uh, severely dilated left ventricle. The uh, systolic function was severely decreased with an EF of 20 to 25 percent. The uh, RV was normal systolic function. He had severe mitral regurg, some mild tricuspid regurg. Is they ordered valve was trilethal with no regurgitation. And, and when we look at the echoes pre-op, this is another important thing. We look at the uh, we look at the um, bypass grafts and the coronary anatomy, but we also look at the echo. And the things that you want to confirm are uh, the LV function. You want to make sure that it is in fact um, is in fact depressed. In this case, it was a 20 to 25 percent ejection fraction. You want to make sure it's dilated. We have a lot of patients who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or restrictive disease or some sort of diastolic dysfunction. And the LV cavity is just too small to accommodate the inflow cannula for the LDAD. So, you know, I, I typically go off five to five and a half centimeters as a, as a base, as a, as a minimum for these, uh, uh, for LV dilation on echo. Uh, any smaller than that, you run, run into problems with filling or ventricular arrhythmias that you create that weren't there before. So that's a pretty important point. The RV, when you look at the echo, you want to make sure it looks normal. Uh, I mean, a lot of these people will not have normal RVs, but it kind of sets the stage for what you're going to have to deal with post-op. And if you've got an LV that is not great and you're putting an LVAD in, but you've also got an RV that's not great, you got to be prepared to really up the inotropic support 
or consider at least an RVAT when you come out of the OR. And so the, the LV is important, the RV is important. Um, typically, a lot of these patients will have severe mitral regurgitation, but the LVAT unloads the LV. And so I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of doing anything with the mitral or tricuspid valve at the time of, of uh, surgery. I think uh, a cross clamp in these patients, while you can do it and get away with it, it does you know, add a little complexity to the case. There is some data that maybe the post-op care is a little easier if you've taken care of mitral regurg or tricuspid regurg uh, during the time of your LVAD. But um, I don't know that it's um, convincing enough that you know, I'd put a cross clamp on for an hour and try and fix it. And the last thing is this aortic valve. Um, if you've got any AI, uh, I mean, if you've got mild, the high side of mild or above, so high side of mild, moderate, or severe, that valve in my mind needs to be fixed. Um, if you've got mild AI or trace AI, Usually I'll leave it. The risk there is that you create this circuit, this loop of blood flow. You're pulling blood from the LV. You're putting it out into the aorta, and then it's coming back through the aortic valve into the LV. So it's just this blind loop, um, yeah. but it's not actually moving forward. So what I do, and I've used this, uh, there's a stitch called a park stitch, is where you over-sew the aortic valve. And I've used that in the past, but you know I've seen a number of patients, uh, not a number, just a couple of patients fail. And when they fail, it's really uh, it really complicates post-op management because really they if it fails they end up with severe AI and you've got to take them back to the OR and, and it can be a big morbidity or mortality. So I usually I'm happy putting a cross clamp on and just taking the valve out and putting a prosthesis in in anyone with high mild to moderate or severe uh, AI at the time of valve bed. Yeah, I've got a quick uh, comment about the park stitch. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know we've we've been doing these quite, uh, I, I would say, we we did a, a, a lot of LVADs, uh, I think, um, probably four or five, six years ago, mm -hmm. uh, we did over 100 in a year, and we uh, routinely, uh, one of the surgeons here used a park stitch. What's your, what's your thoughts about the um, uh, remodeling of the LV? You see these patients that sometimes they get an, an, an LVAD in, and all of a sudden uh, their EF, you know, changes from 20 to 25, comes back to 30 to 35, and then they've got that park stitch in there. Yeah. Uh, we, we saw a couple of those patients like that, and that really puts you in a dilemma. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of ways to fix the aortic valve. The park stitch is one, and the park stitch takes the leaflets and, and pulls them together centrally. So actually, you can still get blood flow around that stitch. Um, you can also over-sew the valve completely, which you can imagine would be a huge problem if your LVAD failed. And, you know, while it's rare that the LVAD fails, we have seen LVADs fail. And if an LVAD fails and you've got a completely oversewn aortic valve, you're kind of, you're, you're dead. Yeah. Um, the park stitch is nice because it allows blood flow around the leaflets because um, the central area is just the area that's, uh, that's pulled together. Um, but, you know, in patients who are like young, young females with postpartum, cardiomyopathy are typically the ones that we see recover after some LVAD therapy. And so if you're looking at someone who's postpartum or young or has some sort of recoverable cardiomyopathy, it might be better to replace their valve because if they do recover and now they've got this huge stitch there, you know, that may compromise their function and uh, reduce their ability to recover from, uh, you know, on the LVAD. So, you know, some of these patients, and we can get to this later down the line, will be candidates for LVAD decommissioning, which is the LVAD gets shut off and cut and then you're done, but you've got to have a functioning aortic valve for that to occur. And 
a hard stitch gives you a partially functioning valve, but isn't the best situation if you're aiming for recovery. Yeah, and primarily those were the patients that we would uh, that I distinctly remember. It, they were young patients with viral uh, myo, uh, yeah. myocarditis, right, and, yeah. or my, uh, you know, cardiomyopathies. Yeah, those are, yeah, exactly. So viral cardiomyopathies, young peripartum or postpartum cardiomyopathies. Um, there are a number of them, but you know, the, typically the people who you can guarantee won't recover are the ones with systemic disease or just ischemic cardiomyopathy, and they're old and um, you know, they're really, uh, they have viability studies from MRI that show there's no viable territory. So those are the people that don't recover who you can probably get away with a part stitch on. Sorry, I didn't mean to segue. That's okay. There's a lot to talk about with these LDADs. So let's get back to the presentation. Next slide. Looking at the uh, pre-op lab date on this patient, there wasn't a lot that stuck out. Maybe his, you know, his somatic was okay. His platelets were in were in normal range. His BUM was a little high, and his creatinine was a little high. So before we were starting the CCP, I was working with. I just wanted to make sure that this patient was making urine, uh, depending on how we were going to approach the case. And when they put the pole in, he was actually making quite a bit of urine, so that that kind of alleviated any. He didn't have any kidney issues, you know, on his H and P. So that was just something I want to keep an eye on. Uh, his INR was a little bit higher, so bleeding could be an issue. Uh, but that was just something, again, that's talking with the surgeon, kind of getting his plan what he's going to do. These are kind of things that I'm going to kind of look at for when we go on pump and stuff like that. Well, John, can yeah, I, I, see, I, see, I, I also I, Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was going to ask, is, was this patient on some on Coumadin or, or something with that INR of 1.8? I think he was on Coumadin for uh, AFib. I think he had a history of AFib, was on yep. Coumadin. We'll typically reverse these patients in the OR just so we can get their bleeding under control. Um, and, and that's another consideration. I mean, if someone's on Coumadin and they're tolerating it, you know, maybe an LZAD is the right choice for them. Uh, but, you know, a heart transplant, again, is definitive therapy. Now, going back to the creatinine, you know, we have in our selection committee, we talk a lot about whether patients will... You know, a lot of our patients come to us with CKD stage 3, and it's always a concern, is this chronic kidney disease due to the heart, or is it chronic kidney disease that's intrinsic that's not going to get better after heart transplant or LVAD? And, and like with a creatinine of 1.6, those people are on the cusp, and, and you wonder which way they're going to go. I mean, I can tell you that almost routinely all our patients have an AKI post-op, and the definition of that is just a rise in your creatinine by 0.3 or a doubling by one or, a, or an increase by 1.5. Right. And and if you just go based off those strict criteria, a lot of these patients are going to be are going to have AKI post-op. But the ones that I care about are really the ones that have AKI that requires CRT or dialysis. Now I don't know if you guys want to talk about strategies during LVAD uh, surgery to maybe mitigate the risk of uh, post-op kidney failure. I don't know what you guys normally like to do. Yeah, well, so what what, what I primarily do is I'll flow an index of two four or higher. Uh, on pump, and then we we definitely track the DO2. So, John, was, I'm sure that's what you're well, going to read. So, the one thing is, is well, I agree with him as far as the 2-4 index, but with these, and I kind of talked about that, just or I will talk about it, is I've got to keep, if I'm flowing too high pressures or too high flows, I've got to, you know, I'm going to have a lot of, possibly getting a lot of blood in his face or around where he's trying to, so that's kind of a, also an issue of, We've got to maintain the pressures, but we also need to maintain our DO2 and our flows as well. 
but he's got to be able to see at the same time. We all know that. So that was kind of an issue we had with this case, uh, which actually we'll talk about here in a second, uh, where we were maintaining the pressures while we were keeping the flow as high as possible. So that, that's kind of a, an issue that you run into. It's kind of a, you know, just talking with the surgeon. And the good thing is Dr. Robin will communicate with you and talk about and ask you how you're doing back there, see if he needs, we need to do anything else to increase flows or whatever's going on at the field at the time. You uh, do you want to go to the next? Out of curiosity. Well, I, I want them to have a good time while we're operating. But I will say that if someone has moderate AI and these guys are flowing like 8 million liters a minute, it really hurts us because all that flow is coming back through the right. aortic valve into my face. Right. I could deal with it, but it's kind of a headache. So. No, it, it, it makes, yeah, the whole point of being there, of course, you have to do the operation and, you know, nothing is without risk, clearly. And even though I think the, the heart-lung machine has, has, is, is one of the most incredible inventions uh, ever in the history of mankind, it has, A, its limitations, and B, it carries its own morbidities. And I think we have to accept that. Uh, I'm curious, do you cool your patients? So, you know, if you're unable to flow at a high enough index to facilitate the operation, do you mitigate the reduction in DO2 by using hypothermic strategies or is the procedure too fast? I've done that in the past, not for LVADs. LVADs are usually fairly straightforward in my mind, but uh, you know, when I get into trouble, the first thing is, is cooling. And I, that's not something that, you know, when I'm in trouble, I focus on trying to fix the bleeding, and it's not something that's on my mind. And usually the only reason I cool is because the perfusionist suggests, hey, do you want to cool? And then I say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, and we do it. So, I mean, it's, a good, it's good to have that kind of interplay. But for LVADs, I've not had to do that. I don't know what you guys think. I usually stay warm. Yeah, we, we, we'll usually, you know, usually he says stay warm. We usually drift a little bit. It's usually an hour procedure, uh, hour, hour and ten minutes. And so uh, I, I usually, when I go on, I just, uh, I'll just turn my heater uh, cooler off and intrinsically just drift. I won't let the patient's core temperature get lower than 34. We start pushing 34, and I'll just put the, uh, the heater cooler on 35 just for the transient so we, we don't dip down. You know, you know, cooling. You know, cooling has its advantages, but also has its disadvantages. True. Yes, everything we do has a yin and a yang. That's, there's no question about that. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of, we see everything. Uh oh, what's that? Uh oh, we're back. Um, bleeding. Are they good, Joe? Yeah, we're good. I thought we. I saw something Close going up. crazy. Sorry. Okay. All right. So you want to go to the next slide? That's them? Okay, can you communicate with them? There we go. Can you guys hear us okay? I like this. Yeah, this presentation. Yeah, this is this is because then you can't hear their cameras frozen. There you go, you're back. Do they know we're the back? Can they hear us? Hey, Matt, can you hear us? No, he can't hear us. Can somebody please communicate with them? Magic. Okay, so can you just, yeah. I'll let people on YouTube know. We, oh, they can hear me? Okay. Oh, okay, so we're still streaming. 
Okay, well, well, welcome back. It's a really good program. Uh, we had some technical difficulties, so, you know, that does happen. But I think they bring up some really good points. You know, we have the concern about uh, using hypothermia, using the pump at all. Uh, it's very beneficial. It really does benefit uh, tremendously in being able to facilitate these operations. But at the same time, the pump, as I said, is not without its morbidities. Uh, there's coagulation issues, there's inflammatory processes, and we do a lot of things to mitigate this. There's fluid redistribution within the, uh, within the body. There's, uh, uh, with hypothermia, you have coagulation issues. And this patient that they're discussing already had an elevated uh, 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 INR to 1.8, was probably on Coumadin, and I'm curious, I wanna ask Dr. Hoffman, did they do they reverse it with vitamin K? I'm really not sure, but I'm curious to know if they do because I know a lot of people are kind of afraid of vitamin K. Um, how are we doing, guys? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so I'm going to have to tell them that Vanderbilt needs to do something about having better internet access. Is this what it's going to be like when we move to our new studio? We're going to have all these problems. No, but are we going to have all? We are. are we going to have all those problems ourselves. Hmm. We'll never do cheap internet. We're going to go back to the Mophie, and we're going to have. Uh, we're just going to use cellular data. That's it. Mm hmm. So how are we doing? There they are. There they are. Hey, guys. Hey. How are you? Good. Sorry. No, that's Never okay. Like that. I, listen, I need to talk to you about Vanderbilt's internet um, service, okay? <laughs> there's They have so many better ones out there, all right? You're number one in heart surgery, but seemingly, like, n n number, I don't know what, minus one on internet access. So we need to fix we're that. Top, we're in the top 25 in Yelp. That's right. That's very good. And John, don't forget, I'm hiring over here, okay? Because we have good internet access here. Comes with the contract. You get it in your home. All right, go ahead. So, and again, Dr. Hoffman can elaborate on this, but so the surgical plan is there's going to be a pump assist procedure. Uh, since this is a redo, during the timeout, we passed up lines. Dr. Hoffman putting in uh, femoral wires. For the, uh, he put in wires in for both the venous and arterial lines prepared to go on. We had to go on emergently during the incision. Uh, the plan is to stay normothermic. Again, like Matt said, we would drift a little bit, uh, but we'll stay in that 34 to 36 range. Uh, the HeartMate 3, the one thing I love about Vanderbilt, again, I haven't done this, you know, Matt might be able to talk a little bit more of this, but here at Vanderbilt, the perfusion of Prime and Dier, the uh, HeartMate 3. So I didn't actually have any pictures available for me setting it up last time, but that is something, you know, just get you out of normally what we're doing and we get to we get to set up in prominent. So that's actually a lot of fun as well. Um, so so the plan is that Dr. Hoffman will find a point on the LVA uh where he'll core in the implant and at that point then he clamps the outflow track, uh plus the drop line and then attaches the drop line or the uh, outflow track to the yeah, so that's basically what I do. For these redos, for every redo, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I always put a, a femoral arterial five French sheath in, and I use it as an art line, but can use it you know, to go on emergently, or I can use it to convert to a balloon pump if I need to. 
I put a five French Venus sheath in, uh, which I can also use to go on bypass, but if, if I don't need it at the end of the case, I can take it out. I like to have my lines up before I do the sternal, uh, you know, saw through the sternum. Um, and uh, in this case, you know, in most cases, everything goes well and you, you get in and I, I cannulate the right atrium and the aorta just like normal. Um, I, uh, and then I do this dissection. There's always, um, you know, there's your, your bypass grafts, which is the limit LAD in this case, and there's a lot of uh, scar tissue. So I do this dissection. I free up the apex. I pull it into the field, and I use echo to locate the apex, and I core it, and I sew this felt sewing ring to it um, so that there's uh, something to anchor the, the actual pump to. I put the pump in, and then I um, tunnel the, the, uh, the drive line, which is the, uh, the, um, the uh, electronics and, the, and the, the power supply to the LVAD. I tunnel it out the left upper quadrant usually, and I make a bunch of stab incisions on the abdomen to do that. And then I uh, connect it, and, and then the outflow graft I just take to the aorta. Um, and then there's this whole thing I do for de-airing, um, which is I put a de-airing needle or a root vent in the graft, in the outflow graft, while it's still clamped. And I just turn on the LVAD, because when the LVAD starts, it's just spinning, but it's not propelling any blood out of the LV into the aorta. It's just kind of spinning in place, and I'll increase the flows, and that blood will start going out the outflow graft and into the vent. So all of that is is not it's not it's as they do a great job de-airing, but when I turn it over to put it in, always some air gets into the pump. So the de-airing is an important aspect of this, and that's how I start that. And then I'll slowly ramp up my flows as I as I uh, uncross clamp the outflow graft. There are some centers where or some reports where people have done this off pump. I'm not a huge fan of that. It's bloody, and we had even done that here for some number of years. Um, you don't really have a lot of options if something goes wrong. Um, people have done it successfully. It's just, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm not good enough or uh, <laughs> I just haven't taken that step yet. And I, I don't know if I'm ever going to do that. But the typical thing I'll do is either sternotomy or thoracotomy, but I'm not at the off-pump point, off point yet. So. Uh, there, and that, there was a surgeon here that used to do off-pump. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a progression as well. You know, um, you know he, he did well over 100 a very short amount of time that he was here and, um, you know, progression from um, you know, doing a, a full sternotomy, doing a thoracotomy, doing a semi, uh, uh, stern, uh, you know, a semi mini, mini, yeah, mini, mini sternotomy, sternotomy yeah. to where he would tunnel it, uh, the, the graft, you know, almost behind it. So he would, he would free up two sides and run. It was, you know, you continue to get exotic uh, different configurations. And I, I really think that uh, it was to, you know, to have a whole tool bag full of, oper you know, if you would, something would arise in a patient that you would need to do that, you know, that wouldn't have been the first time that he had done that. And so, you know, he, he, he pressed the limits of, uh, of what was options of how to do things. And, you know, he's a very talented guy. Um, I will say something that, you know, kind of from a perfusion standpoint, you know, he, he said, you know, he's dissecting out the heart and he pulls the uh, LV apex up. That, that in itself, even if you don't have AI, um, you know, when they go to pull the LV apex up, um, you know, sometimes it can distort the aortic valve a little bit and make it incompetent. And so um, we, we, that's, that's the other part. Once he cores it out, you have to watch what you're flowing uh, if he still has it in that position because just the positioning of it can actually give you some AI 
and uh, a lot of a lot of blood can come, uh, you know, up up out of the hole into their face. And you guys can lose volume there. Right? We we, yeah. we lose quite a bit of volume. Suckers, you know, yeah, way up when they go to pour it out, uh, because the heart is a little bit kind of full at the time because you want it full, mm -hmm. uh, because you know you're you're actually, uh, you know, you, you it's you know it's hard to it's hard to cut a hole in, in a flaccid balloon as opposed to you know. Yeah. And so he, he does ask us to fill in the heart a little bit while we're doing that. I'm always amazed by you guys can almost lose an entire pump full of volume just in the heart. And I'm always amazed by how much, if you just let the heart fill and you don't care about protection, I mean, you can almost put your entire blood volume in that thing. It's crazy. Yeah. So one thing I'll do when I have the heart lifted as I look at the PA pressure is because, yeah, the heart's, the blood's going to come back, but ultimately you're going to see it affect the PA pressures if it's clinically significant. Now, what I do is, once I lift the heart, I make a commitment to pour quickly because I don't want to leave the heart lifted with no, you know, because all that blood is going to come to the LV and then backflow into the lungs. So I pour the heart quickly and I put a bunch of suckers in there. And then usually the PA pressures stay low because now you're vented. Yep. You've got the best vent in the world. Right. Huge hole in the LV. Yeah. And, uh, and well, let me let you finish because I've got some good questions on the web uh, for Dr. Hoffman and for you, Matt. So. Uh, let me let you go ahead and continue with your slides because I do want to get these questions asked. Okay. Uh, the perfusion plan here, here at Vanderbilt, we use an S5 uh, heart-lung machine. We use a roll head with a half-inch venous line, a three-inch arterial line, and a vacuum-assisted venous drainage. Uh, Dr. Hoffman likes to use a 21-French Edwards curved tip cannula, the dispersion tip. Uh, we use a 29-37-French venous cannula. Uh, again, I'm just going over kind of what everything we passed up. Half-inch, half-inch, half-inch. Half connected with Lurlock. Uh, again, two blue drop suckers. He likes a 14-inch straight root needle, a perfusion adapter to attach to the root needle, and as well as we had femoral venous and arterial cannulas on standby when we pass up if we have to go on emergently. Go ahead, next slide. Uh, perfusion considerations. Patient's uh, 177.8 centimeters. Uh, he was 85 kilograms. His BSA was 2.05. I put a flow of 2.2 on here. Here at Vanderbilt, we run a 2.4. I was just doing this. I just put a 2 2 in. I'm just going to acknowledge that. So his flow would be around 5 liters at a 2 4 index. Uh, his delusional hematocrit uh, calculated at 30%. His heparin dose was 27,000 units. And his allergies, he was, uh, Entresto was uh, one of his allergies, or was his allergies. So go ahead, next slide. Uh, fusion conduct, we uh, primed with 1,200 mLs of plasma priming solution. 10,000 heparin in the pump, and this goes back to me looking at the, you know, worrying about the kidneys or anything like that. He was making good urine, so I did prime with 12.5 grams of 25% mannitol. Uh, initiation was smooth. Uh, the goal here, I put MAP of 70, but actually this, now that I went back and thought about this case, I uh, actually kept his MAPs in, you know, lower uh, between 60 and 70, because at one point, uh, Dr. Hoffman did mention that we were getting some, quite a bit of blood in the field, so I actually kept them around between 60 and 70. Uh, and with this patient, I was expecting to have some extra volume, but when we went on, his volume status was low uh, once we got to full flow. So immediately, I kind of I dropped two uh, bottles of 5% uh, albumin, 215 mLs. Uh, we had no issues with the ACT throughout the procedure. We maintained uh, 480 throughout the procedure. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, during the procedure, and he's already kind of talked about this, uh, he chooses a point on the LV apex with a coin sight. Uh, once he does that, he does ask us to come down on flows. Uh, we are worried about blood coming back, and once he's corded out, 
he will put in his pump suckers in there to help decompress and visualize uh, where he's uh, poured outside. Um, for the sewing ring, he uses a running proline suture, uh, which is attached to my parting to the sewing ring. Uh, at that point, he attaches the, the pump, secured to the sewing ring, and the outflow track is clamped. Uh, next, he takes the drive line and he'll tunnel it on the patient's abdomen and secure it with subcutaneous sutures. Uh, at that point, he connects the drive line to the power source. Uh, he would, at that point, uh, pick a spot on the aorta where he selects. And use, he actually uses, so we have to come down and flow again, and he uses a side binding clamp uh, to perform the aortotomy. And at that point, uh, he attaches that flow track with a, using 6-0 proline with an anti-side fashion suture. No, that's, okay. I mean, that's exactly what I do. Okay, go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, at that point, he uh, inserts a root needle, is inserted at the, the apex of that focal left for and like he said, he will tell us to start the, uh, the bad at 3,000 RPMs so we can recirculate, but he will ask for us to put a little volume in there. If we don't have any volume in the heart, we're not going to be able to circulate. So this is uh, the biggest thing for me and Matt when we're coming off is we've, get, we've got to you know, we've got to preserve the RV and we've got to have enough volume in the heart so we don't so we don't collapse that RV. I think the numbers are around 20% of LVADs go on RVADs, is that correct? Yeah, it's 30 to 40% will develop RV failure, but here, at least, we are, um, we like to optimize our inotropes and, uh, and, uh, and vasopressors more than anything else. And, and that means when I say optimize, sometimes we'll really crank it up because we don't like putting people on RVADs if we can avoid it. it, comes with it. Sometimes it comes with an open chest. Sometimes you can use a percutaneous RVAD like the Protect Duo, but it's not fun to have someone in the ICU you're worried about on a mechanical support. And it's really not easy to manage mechanical support on the left and mechanical support on the right. Despite you know people being able to do it, I don't like doing it, so I'd prefer to just come out on inotropes if we have to. So um, we don't have a lot of people come out on our vats here, um, and and they usually do okay. So, you know, what, and I, I don't know enough about it, uh, you know, to talk in depth. But uh, we do we do do a calculated poppy score ahead of time, and you know what we found is that um, you know, calculating a poppy score um, ahead of time it kind of gives you an indication of how your uh, RV is actually. Uh, going to perform. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can talk about that after the, after the fact, getting the details of what that uh, score and uh, calculation entails. But that, that's primarily what, what I try to look at uh, to give me kind of an indication of uh, should I better should I have an RVAD, a Centrum Mag, or a uh, Protect Duo handy, um, you know, coming off. Yeah. And you know, that's that's the thing is, and Matt might be able to speak to this more, Dr. Hoffman, because I've only done the VADs here. Um, but that's the, the beauty of having a sworn. I can watch my feeling pressures. I can talk to the surgeon. You know, the main thing is I do. I just want to keep enough volume in the heart to, as we start working up that LVAD. I do not want that RV to collapse on me or anything like that. And like you said, they use anotropic support. Um, that's just that's the biggest concern is coming off watching your pressures pressures as well. Um, I don't know. Do they? If they, I know they do them off pump, but these other places, would they? Do they use swans? Sometimes it's variable. I mean, where I where I uh, came from before this, uh, it was sometimes we had swans, sometimes we didn't. Uh, it just depends on the person doing it. Uh, I could go either way. Um, I think that uh, being able to look at the heart and having that visual confirmation means a lot more than a lot of numbers we use. But 
some people really like the objective assessments. Well, and that would be the biggest thing. If we didn't have a swan, it would be very key that um, he's able to communicate to me that he's saying that, that that right side of the heart's filling up, so we're getting enough volume in the heart. Um, if you want to pull that slide back up, Joe. Uh, and so once we've de-aired, again, Dr. Hoffman will speak to this better. Um, I think you like to, you don't like to get to full flow sometimes. You like to get to a certain point and work, work yeah. your way up. Well, I think if someone's right heart is okay and I know they're going to fly off bypass, I'll just ramp them up from 3,000 at the start to 5,000. Usually everyone comes out around 5,000. If I think they're at real high risk for RV failure, I'll come down, I'll, I'll go to like, I don't know, 4,200, 4,400, whatever. Yeah, I'll just come out and the ICU can wean them up. Uh, or ramp them up gradually over a day or two. The problem with coming out low, and if you're flowing like a liter a minute, it's going to be a little bit of a problem. The HeartMate threes don't clot as much as some of the older pumps or the L or the H pad. But if they sit at low flow for long enough, I mean anything will clot. So you got to just be cognizant of that. So if you're going to come out low, you got to just keep. You know, some of the ICU providers may not be as facile with LVAD, so you got to be in there and be keeping an eye on your flows and slowly ramping them up. I like to ramp by 200 at a time, but um, I would prefer, my preference is to always just ramp up to around 5,000 if we can. Sometimes they settle out and they go higher or lower. Um, but, you know, I keep an eye on the echo. I, I put a lot of stock in the echo, especially the short axis biventricular views. Um, I put a lot of stock in that as it relates to how the RV is functioning when your LVAD flows are coming up. So. Next slide. Uh, that, well, that will be the while I still want to talk about this. So the, well, go ahead, go back to that last slide, Joe. All right. Uh, so once we actually got off, uh, you know, the most important thing, the very first thing you need to learn about dealing with our or with these LVADs is, is where is the uh, alarm silence button. That's the most important thing. Where's the button? The, the alarm silence button. How to okay. turn the four-hour four <laughs> alarm silence. That's the first thing that you need to learn uh, because when we were we were kind of bouncing back and forth, and I would get the alarm silence, and he told me to put it on the four-hour silence, and for the life of me, I couldn't remember how to do it. So I'm sitting there having to try to come on pump and hit alarm silence the whole time. So that's the most important thing to learn from that. Uh, so finally, once we kind of got off, we settled in around 4,800 RPMs. Uh, he, he was happy with that. And as later on, as we got up to the room the next day, I think they pushed him up a little bit over. Uh, yeah, so I think that guy settled out like 54 yeah. or something yeah. like that. So we go even higher. It's, you know, as the volume... Uh, redistributes and then we start LASIKs, I mean, things are changing. I mean, you're not going to end up in the same place you started. So don't expect that this is like a hard and fast rule. Uh, the total by bypass time is 59 minutes, uh, which is a little bit slower for him. Yeah, time, this, so. is, this, is, this is an anomaly. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> uh, but as far as that, that's that was all with this case. Um, my, my next slide just references from the photos there. Um, I guess we can take questions now. Yeah. Sounds good. Very good. Well, John, very good for your uh, for your first run at presenting. You did a fantastic job. I think uh, you should thank your supporting cast uh, yeah. when this is over with. I think you need to buy them both some Starbucks oh. or whatever they'd like. <laughs> I would say dinner somewhere, but I know you're a student still, so yeah. you're probably still poor. Um, so I had a really good question, uh, if I could go with Dr. Hoffman first, and that is... Uh, could you discuss considerations in placement of the VAD as to the point in the apex to avoid the LVAD from obstruction obstruction of the mitral valve leaflets or papillary muscles? Yeah, so what I do is I, when I, uh, and so 
one thing is when you plan these operations, if you're if you're going to go sternotomy, the apex is a little bit harder to find. And one of the benefits, I mean, there are a lot of difficulties with doing thoracotomy implantation. It's it's a little slower. Um, it's a little more cumbersome for exposure. Um, it's you've got two operative sites. But the benefit is that you're staring at the apex from the LV thoracotomy or, or the left uh, the left anterior lateral thoracotomy. Um, the downside to sternotomy is that you've got to lift the heart up. And I put like sometimes 10 laps under the heart to get that heart lifted into the field. And so you kind of lose your point of reference as to where the apex is. There's a point, there's a point near the apex that will dimple. So if you feel around the apex, you'll come to a point that kind of dimples in and is softer than everything surrounding. That, for me, is the true apex, but that doesn't necessarily correspond with the actual uh, optimal placement of the pump, because when you look at the image on echo, if I'm pushing on that dimple, that true apex, it may be sitting right next to the, you know, to the septum. It may be pointing away from the inflow from, or from the mitral valve. Um, and so sometimes, especially when these hearts get big and dilated, the true apex separates from where the optimal position of the LVAD goes. So I start with that dimple, and I look at the, the long axis view of the LV, and I look at how it relates to the mitral valve. And if it looks good, I'll core there. But you got to be careful not to core into the, uh, into the septum. If it's big and dilated, I think I know that I'm going to have to move lateral to that. So I'll start at the dimple. And I'll watch the um, I'll watch the TEE, and I'll just push my finger lateral, and I'll find a spot that when my finger is pointing, you can see the your finger dimple into the LV, and it and if it points to the mitral valve, that's how I know that's going to be a good spot for my inflow cannula. Um, I don't do anything like inject needles or inject air or put wires, although you can. Um, but I think I get a pretty good position without doing that just by using my finger to locate not the true apex. Sometimes it's the true apex, but the area of the heart where the, the inflow cannula is going to point to the mitral valve. And then when I open, obviously, I look for a couple things. I look for clot. I usually don't see any clot because these people are anticoagulated. I look for trabeculations, which I'll cut out because those can obstruct the inflow cannula. So any trabeculation, even if it's small, I cut. I want this thing to be completely clear. I look at the mitral valve. Um, sometimes you can see the mitral valve very clearly, and you can even do mitral valve work from this position. And I look at the papillary muscles, and I just make sure that the, the flow into the LV uh, cannula is going to into the LVAD cannula is going to be free from obstruction. And that's it. There's no science to it. It's just looking. No, but but it it is a, it's a well choreographed uh, you know uh, dance, if you will, between the surgeon's hands and anesthesia giving them the, the long axis view. I mean, it, you know. He's looking down at the chest, you know, uh, and, and manipulating physically uh, the apex as both the anesthesiologist and you know Dr. Hoffman are looking at the at the TE view. And so you know that it's it's that 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 primarily is what I've seen is is the best way uh, to to kind of get out of that, uh, that that pitfall of getting into the septum or um, you know getting into the mitral valve uh, outflow tract too close to it. Well, and actually, you just brought something that's really interesting. And and if I may, if you don't mind, if I go a little bit off track, because you just said something to me that I I really never knew. Um, is this normal? This area of the heart. So, in a non-heart failure heart, let's say just a a normal ventricle, normal normal heart, normal EF. 
Um, is that dimple present in all hearts? Yeah, because it's an area of the heart that contracts. Uh, it, I feel like it has minimal contraction compared to their surrounding myocardium. I, it's not that it's thinner. It, it may be a little thinner because it's the apex, but it just contracts differently, and it's weird. It's like a little dimple, and your finger just falls into it. And you don't really recognize it when you're just starting because you don't know what you're looking for. But after you've done enough of these, you know exactly what it is. And when I'm with a fellow, the, the first thing I do when I lift the heart is I have them find that dimple because that's just a point of reference. And it's, again, it's not that's not always the place we put the LVAD. Right. You know, it could be lateral. But I think in normal hearts, that dimple is where the true apex is. And that's that's very interesting because and and where I was going with this is and and I just you know and I have not seen this very often I I now have seen it twice in my career but do you think that area is the area that um, begins the ballooning the paradoxical uh, contraction when somebody gets true Takatsubo syndrome? Yeah, it, it could be. I've not um, you know I've seen. I've seen it on echo a number of times, but I've not seen that like in the operating room. I, it's not something I've seen, so I don't know exactly where in relation to that dimple uh, you would get that. But I, it's possible. Yeah, that's really that's really strange. I I never I never knew that, so I find that very fascinating. Um, Matt had a question for you. Uh, actually, several people are asking about this RV failure score that you were talking about. What is what is that, and can you elaborate on it, please? It, it's called the Poppy score. I believe it's P-O-P-I. P-A-P-I. Oh, P-A-P-I. Yeah. Uh, and, and go ahead. It's a pulmonary artery pressure index. So it's the pulmonary artery systolic minus diastolic divided by right atrial pressure. And, you know, you I... need to slow down and say it one more time. It's pulmonary systolic minus diastolic divided by right atrial pressure. Mm-hmm. And it's usually, uh, if it's more than, I think the number is 1.1 or 1.2, you're okay. If it's lower than that, you start to worry about your RV contractility. Now, the problem with that, and it's a, it's great, and it tells you a lot, but if you look at the ICU flow sheets before and after LVAD surgery on these patients, their poppy is going to be, it's going to be less, it's going to be like 0. 0.8, 0. 0.5. They're, Every, always they're always low. And, 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 and that's because a lot of them come in volume overloaded. And so if you've got a high right atrial pressure, I mean, uh, and, you know, not in mild pulmonary hypertension, your poppy is going to be low. So I, I put some stock in it, uh, but again, I see it in everyone. And so it's like hard to discern where that's going to be clinically relevant. I think the big things for me are the echo, uh, looking at the echo and the RV. Um, I like to know if the RV is dilated or if it's contracting well in hypertrophic or just normal muscle. Um, and, and, and I actually put a lot of stock in the step up between the right atrial pressure, CPP, and the PA mean. For me, that's uh, the, the um, RV's ability to generate a pressure more so than anything else. And some of that, and that plays into the poppy. I mean, they're the same numbers, but for me, it's easier to visualize a step up between the right atrium and the PAs than it is to calculate a score and look at that. So mm. um, I've put a lot more stock in it. I put a 10 point, a 10 point step up is nice for me. I mean, that's just what, how I've learned and what, what I think is helpful. Mm. Does that score um, translate into other uh, cases that are not VADs, let's say it's a coronary, let's say it's just a mitral valve, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So does that score have well, relevance within the cardiac surgery realm? Well, the, the, the ICU will calculate that. If anyone who's got a PA cath, our EPIC, our electronic medical record will calculate that. And every time you get a set of PA numbers, it'll calculate the poppy. 
So, it, you know, if you're concerned someone has RV failure, then yeah, you can say, oh yeah, and the poppy is this. Um, but on, to be honest, I don't really use that a lot. Um, mm. I just kind of see it in the chart and move on. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but, well, and, and I, I think that's, I think, you know, perfusion, you know, we don't, we don't have, the, you know, a lot of us don't have the skill set uh, of to be able to visualize what a TE, you know, I mean, we, we know what a good, a good heart looks like on TE, you know, I, I just, I, I think we're more of a numbers or, you know, a calculation type, uh, you know, uh, profession. And so it's just something that I, I go to personally, but to Dr. Hoffman's point, coming out of surgery, uh, when they're up in the ICU, they'll always have, uh, you, you very rarely see a poppy, uh, a poppy score greater than 1, 0.9, 0.8. But pre-op, going in, uh, I do I do use it just to kind of, it, it's it's not, uh, I wouldn't say it's foolproof, but it sure it surely will tell you, um, you know, the, the, if you have a poppy score of less than 1 going in, uh, into the surgery, you know, you you, you may want to, you know, have, have you know have a, a right heart, uh, you know, right right sided vat or, or something available, uh, mm-hmm. you know, around, and that's just that's just, I think that's just kind of my uh, my rule of thumb as a mm-hmm. perfusionist. And I think that like anything, I mean, these these are complex patients, and if you're talking about deciding whether you need an RVAD or if you can get by with just inotropes and vasopressors. You're going to have like 8 million numbers and images, and you're going to be looking at the heart, 8 million data points, and, you know, uh, maybe 70 or 80% of them are going to align, and that's how you make that decision. But I don't make one decision based off one number, and so I'll incorporate that into, you know, Poppy, I'll incorporate it into saying, oh, this is why we need to go this way. But if everything's looking good and the Poppy sucks, you know, I'm not going to, I don't put a lot of weight in it. you got to pick and choose and kind of, Decide where your numbers are telling you you need to go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. John, question for you uh, from some folks. They were t- you were talking about. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I mean it, it just is what it is. Um, hey, you got to perform, right, Joe? Every day. Every well, that's what we do. We do performance art. I mean, that's what we all do. Okay, and uh, but at the end of the day, John, um, they want to know this. That you made the comment that the patients are frequently volume overloaded when you finish the case do you guys what do you do in terms of reducing or mitigating that uh, volume overload do you measure cop cholerarchotic pressure um i believe they mean or do you uh, uh try to just fill the patient sufficiently to get them off bypass and give as needed how do you manage your fluid with your patients to make sure that they don't they aren't so fluid overloaded, or is that just well, part of the operation? Well, uh, with these guys, uh, depending on, again, uh, if, they, if they're in heart failure, I'm expecting some sort of volume. And our CBP before, when they first float, float the swan, might give us an idea of where we're going to be at. So I was expecting, he, he, I remember he had a little bit of an elevated CBP, and I was expecting to have some extra volume when we started. Um, I had a hemoconcentrated rate if I wanted to pull some volume. Again, that goes back to my point of where his are his kidneys working? Where is he making urine? So he was making urine in this, you know, in this process. So I, I was hoping that during the future we keep his flow high enough that we would make some urine and we wouldn't even have to hemoconcentrate at all. Uh, that, that's if I can do that, that's great. Uh, but when we actually got on, 
to my surprise, he was actually, I was running low on volume almost the whole case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd actually talk, we'd ask often if there was any volume in the chest or anything like that, and we hardly got anything back. So that's just something we kind of look at ahead of time, plan ahead. You know, Matt is, is I think, very similar to that. He'll kind of play it by ear and go from there. If he thinks he's going to need to, to concentrate, he will. Uh, but if we're making urine, that, that may help, and we may not. We may pull off, the, may urinate most of the volume that we're going to pull off anyways. Uh, I don't want to keep, I want to have enough volume to come off my reservoir. Again, that's something, you know, going into uh, keeping that RV enough to flow to the to the elbow head. Um, I don't know if that answered the question. Were you guys giving mannitol for every case? Is that, yeah, we, we, as used we, for diuresis? We, we, some we, other we use, we use mannitol for a couple different reasons, you know, option free radicals. Uh, we can use it for, you know, diuresis, but mostly we use it for. Uh oh. No, no. Oh. I hate that. Am I still on? I'm still on. Okay. Okay, so some really good. Uh, so we're going to get that. Oh, they're back? Hey, you're back. Are they back? See you next month. There you go. Okay. Uh, you're back. Do, but they I don't think they can hear me. For, uh, study for board. Uh, no, they can't. Uh, I'm talking. Uh, he, he knew something, but there wasn't us. Can you guys hear me? I like this format. I okay, they can't hear me, David. Single perfusionist. Yeah. Or the like, okay, so I need to talk now. Okay, so um, with that said, we are having additional technical difficulties. We're going to go to um, me talking. So a couple of things that they brought up I thought are interesting. And I had never heard of this uh, Pappy score or Poppy score. So I need to look that up because I'm really curious about that. Um, you know, we, do, we don't do VADs and we don't do that kind of thing. But we certainly up. Oh, I think they're back. You're back? Yep. There you go. Okay, they're back. So I don't have to say too much. We put three more quarters in the machine. Dude. Dude. <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna do- I'm gonna donate I'm gonna donate internet access to Vanderbilt. Next month it's gonna be like uh, the, the UCLA or some other program. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's not even funny. That has a- <laughs> actually that was quite comical. So <laughs> so so do we have Dr. Hoffman? Do you have any slides? Or videos? Uh, it, the, my slideshow is about an hour long and has a bunch of videos and would take forever to download. So we're running into some internet issues here, as you can tell. Okay, can, can I ask a favor? Yeah. Would you be willing to, um, to do your... Now, John, you did a great job. But, Dr. Hoffman, if you've got that kind of a lecture, would you do that to follow yeah. up, let's say, VAD's, uh, VAD Part 2 part next two, yeah. month? Yeah, and I think my, my slide deck... And this was a good case presentation. Mine speaks more because I've given this. I give this to the anesthesiologist. It speaks more about the anesthetic uh, uh, components, which I think is helpful for you guys. So I think it'd be a good presentation. It has a video of me uh, of doing an LVAD. So yeah. Okay. So Matt, is that okay with you if we schedule that for the uh, for the next program? Yeah, and I, we, we you know in between our 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 forced internet breaks here, we were just discussing. You know, Dr. Hoffman said. You know, he, he really appreciated, you know, he thought, you know, this was a great kind of format, um, you know, case presentation, 
him giving the surgical, you know, the surgeon's uh, perspective of what's going through, having a, you know, a perfusionist involved with it. But, you know, I, I think this is great having, a, you know, having the students give a presentation, a, a case presentation, and having this forum. I mean, I think it flowed really well, and I, I just I, I really appreciate this type of format. Well, I'll tell you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, too. I do have another question. This is a really good question. Um, but, John, we're going to keep this tape and in another five years go back and look at yourself from where you came from, and I think you'll be really surprised at the remarkable change. So it all takes time and experience, and let me tell you something. I, my hat's off to you for having the courage to sit in between your director and the chief cardiac, or not, I guess you're not technically the chief of the program, but you're probably the That's chief okay. of the transplant program. Um, the chief of this domain. Yeah, well, and, 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 and this incredibly talented uh, cardiac surgeon, that really nice guy, too, I have to tell you. I'm really disappointed you didn't go to dinner with us that night because you're really an entertaining, pleasant, uh, just the most, one of the most affable fellows that's a heart surgeon I've ever known. And I really appreciate that. And your support of both the perfusion department and the students is incredible. So I, I really do. I think that's something that we need to uh, point out. And that kind of collaboration is what we need. So Dr. Hoppin, quick question, though, from uh, Mariel. And Mariel, I don't know where you're from. If you could let me know, I'd appreciate it. What about coexisting precapillary pulmonary hypertension? I was wondering if this is an exclusion criterion for AVAD. Uh, that's a tough question, and that could be its own presentation, but typically not, depending on the pre-VAD or pre-transplant right heart cath numbers. Um, you know, uh, if, if you've got someone with pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, uh, typically, they've been seen by a pulmonologist in the past, and uh, and 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 we're and we're talking. So you, this is a little more complex than just an answer in 30 seconds. But these patients come in, and you've got to think about whether they're really going to uh, do well with a VAD or if they're going to need a heart lung transplant. And a lot of stock will be put in the pre-VAD right heart cath, and what the pulmonary vascular resistance looks like, and if or how the pulmonary vascular resistance changes with nitric oxide, nipride, 100% FiO2. Um, you know, a PVR, just anecdotally, what we use um, for deciding on heart transplant is we like our PVRs less than three, and if they're not, we like to see that they're reversible with nipride or something like that. Uh, and, and, and then we know that uh, this is probably related to left heart, uh, post-capillary left heart uh, dysfunction. Now, if mm -hmm. they've got pre-existing uh, pulmonary hypertension, like group one or pre-capillary, then you have to have a discussion, is LVAD going to fix them? A lot of times it's not. Well, it'll fix their heart, but it may not fix their pulmonary hypertension. It's, it's, and it's, it's also a little bit more rare to have two diseases like this existing in the same patient. So uh, while the LVAD may not fix the lung issue and the pulmonary hypertension, if it really is group two pulmonary hypertension, which we see a lot of, which isn't pre-capillary, but it's still pulmonary hypertension, then yes, the LVAD will fix it. But um, coexisting uh, uh, pre-capillary and post-capillary hypertension are difficult to manage. Um, and typically we see these patients and we're talking about heart-lung transplant, not so much LVAD. Mm -hmm. But it can be done but it's not going to fix the underlying pulmonary hypertension. That's and so sure. that, 
that patient you're going to end up. So really, at the end of the day, that patient that has pre, you know, pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension that's not, you know, that is, that is it's, it's, it's uh, I guess it's primary pulmonary hypertension, is that patient is going to have a right heart problem over time anyway. So you can fix the left side if they have left-sided failure, but you're always going to have that same problem. It's not something that's reversible. Whereas when you unload the ventricle and now you have improved ventricular function, albeit because of the VAD, it's not necessarily improved function, but you're decompressing that left side, then that, that pulmonary hypertension will normally resolve. Correct. And not right away. There needs to be some remodeling. It takes time. But yes, if it's group 2 pulmonary hypertension, which is caused by LV dysfunction, it will. What, what, percent, what percentage of, of uh, left heart dysfunction do you think masks right heart dysfunction? Uh, well, if you look at the numbers, the, the, the biggest cause of RV dysfunction is LV dysfunction. Right. Uh, and I feel like when you offload the LV, a lot of times the reason the 30 or 40% of patients will develop RV failure is because you're unmasking existing RV failure. That It's just like when you have a bigger brother who takes the spotlight. I mean... It's like hard to focus on the little guy. It's hard to focus on the little guy. <laughs> uh, uh, but so uh, when you uh, when you unload the LV, oftentimes you see uh, you unmask some RV dysfunction. So very good, excellent. Okay, well I think we've uh, we've covered this topic. I feel good about it. Um, again, I wanna I wanna give my compliments to John for being as courageous as you are. I'm looking, listen, I'm looking forward to your next presentation and please get your other colleague students that may have an interest in doing something like this involved as well. This is how you grow in our profession. So it's critically important. Matt, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and the effort and doing everything you do to put these programs on. Um, and oh, by the way, Mariel says, thank you for your answer. Uh, they are a pulmonologist from the Netherlands. So, Mariel, um, and I don't know if we have Dr. Hoffman's uh, email address, but what I'll do is I'll make sure, Mariel, if you'll be kind enough to reach out to us, um, I can forward you a methodology for reaching out to Dr. Hoffman if you have any questions specific to this that he may be able to help you with, with your permission, Dr. Hoffman, of course. Yeah, that's fine. And because uh, I. Done, uh, we have done heart lung transplants here too, so. Yes, and I, I think we it's so. Talk about that as well. And I think exactly, and I think it's so critically important to have this this forum. That's this the whole idea is to bring people yeah. from around the world together uh, as a uh, a central location where we can all develop these uh, collegial relationships that help patients all over the world. Hopefully, that will turn into this. Um, so please, Mariel, reach out to me via email, contact at perfusioneducation.com, and I'll get you Dr. Hoffman's contact information so you can reach out to him personally. Um, and Dr. Hoppen, I want to thank you. I'm going to next next uh, month for the uh, forum, If again, with Matt, with your consent, I would like to schedule you since you have this presentation. I can maybe give you an hour and a half and just schedule it in advance that it's going to be a 90-minute program because I think you said that that's about how long it would take you to do it and do a good job with it. And if you're okay with that, then I'll go ahead and schedule that now um, after this program and when I get a chance to get on the web and send the applications in. 
Sounds good. Okay, I'll do it. All right. Well, with that said, I'm I'm gonna thank you, Matt. You guys want to close it out, and uh, you guys can go back to doing some more VADs, transplants, ECMOs, or whatever. And I did want to ask you, are you know we're getting hammered again, and I don't know what's going on. Our numbers in the community are way down, and I'm assuming these are just patients who have been lingering in the hospital, but we're seeing a big uptick in COVID ARDS uh, ECMOs again. Are you guys seeing that where you are? We are. Uh, we were down to two patients about uh, 10 days ago, and uh, we're back up to seven again. Just, uh, or just COVID. Yeah, just COVID. And is it, do you think it's, I mean, because our, again, our community numbers are way down. So are these well, just, do you feel like these are just leftover patients that have been uh, struggling? No, I, I, I think they're, uh, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to give up too much information, but uh, two, two of our patients are pregnant women. And so, oh, no. Uh, so, yeah, and so we've, so we've, oh, no. I, I feel as though that these are not your average, um, you know, not your run-of-the-mill patients. I think they have a you know a, a precondition. Pregnancy is a precondition. You know, is a precondition. Yes. That I, I think uh, you know their metabolic rate is and it and it's just very interesting that they're you know they're all in the 20, uh, 20 to twenty six week um, you know range. It's you know not we're not seeing you know all the pregnant patients that we've seen. Uh, I think this is the fourth one we've seen now. They've all been in with that range. So it's it's not necessarily the early pregnancy. But as the baby, I believe, you know, starts to uh, develop, and I'm not a, uh, I think I took one class on, uh, you know, fetal development back in perfusion school 20 years ago, so I'm not an expert. But I think there's got to be something to do with the metabolic rate and, you know, what the, you know, what the demand is on, on the native cardiac function and pulmonary function of, of, the, of the woman at, at, at that development. So we're, that is an uptick that we've seen that... Uh, I don't think it uh, has anything to do with COVID per se. I think it's. I think it has to do with the patient population. And I'm assuming that they were that they were non-vaccinated, of course, because they were probably worried about the vaccine. Correct. Well, Correct. you know, I'll tell you this story. I mean, if you don't mind, if you have just a moment, and I'll entertain you a little bit. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting. But we have had two patients here. Uh, who were in that same pregnancy range, and unfortunately, uh, we lost, you know, both patients and the uh, and the babies. Um, the emergency C-sections were done, but they they didn't survive. One was twins, um, and here recently, and I'll I'll tell you the story, and you may chuckle at it. I'm not sure, but uh, I we were doing a case. Uh, I was covering an ECMO shift, and there was a an echo tech, I believe, that didn't want to come into the room uh, on a patient who was now out of isolation, had been uh, had 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 uh, uh, three weeks post COVID uh, diagnosis, was on ECMO, and we needed an echo. And um, I asked, you know, well, have you not been vaccinated? It's a frontline healthcare worker, and she said no, she hadn't. And I was like, well, why not? You know, and she said, well, I I, I I'm trying to get pregnant. And I said, well, you know, and I was somewhat paternal in my approach. You know, I mean, I'm, I am pretty old. Um, I have a granddaughter, my youngest granddaughter is 19 years old. So, I mean, I have some standing 
in terms of being an older person. And I was paternal in my approach and said, look, you know, we've had some really troubling outcomes with, you know, pregnant women who've gotten COVID. And uh, it may be wise to get the vaccine now before you get pregnant, hopefully pass those antibodies on. But pregnancy and COVID um, are really devastating if you do get it while you're pregnant. Um, anyway, next thing I knew, the uh, CMO, uh, chief medical officer, called me up on the phone and said, uh, listen, Joe, I'm really sorry, but, you know, I've, I've got to counsel you about this complaint that we got from some this person. I immediately knew who it was, and uh, they felt that you had intruded into their personal life and had scolded them for not being vaccinated and they felt that you had uh, berated them and i was like okay you know i said well I'm, I'm i'm sorry they felt that way but this is why i said what i said and he said yes i understand and frankly i didn't want to have to make this telephone call but i'm obligated to so thank you for your understanding and patience but unfortunately you can't tell anybody anything anymore and uh, it's really problematic and very sad and concerning to me that uh, I you know, had to be counseled for trying to give somebody good, solid, evidence-based advice uh, about this. And I think that's one of the problems that you're facing now with your two ladies. They're not uh, your two mothers. They're not vaccinated. And how many times is this going to happen before somebody uh, understands what's happening? It's definitely a delicate subject, uh, and uh, we, uh, I, we we would have to walk that same line here as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've become a very uh, a very sensitive uh, a very sensitive business. Medicine used to be a full contact sport, but it's it just doesn't seem to be anymore. Well, we get to we still get to tell the confusion students what to do, especially <laughs> <in> the <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Well, with that, they don't become their own person until they graduate. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Does he get a new name? Yeah, we'll change his name. Don't worry. He'll look different next time. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to it. So, listen, I really want to thank everyone for being a part of this again today. And Dr. Hoffman, Matt, I'll reach out to you, Matt. But Dr. Hoffman, we're looking forward. I'm going to block off uh, 90 minutes. And it, if you want me to, I'll just block off the entire time. I can do two hours is the, is the max I can do. What would you like me to do? I, we usually, this thing can go, it's probably about an hour, and we can do 15, 20, or 30, even 30 minutes for questions or whatever discussion you want to have. Very good. I'll send that out. And I have a feeling that if you do this, that uh, Mariel from the Netherlands will definitely be on. So uh, we're looking forward to that, and hopefully they'll recruit some of their colleagues to also be a part of this. So we had a lot of really good feedback. I can go on, I can too can go on for a long time with questions, but uh, but unfortunately I think David over there is waving at me that we have to move on and move to the next thing. And uh, Mariel said they will be on. So we appreciate everybody. We will see you in a month uh, on the first Wednesday. I guess it'll be of, uh, this is based on June, the first, first Wednesday of June. We'll be back at seven o'clock for a 90 minute program on a more advanced, on BADS 2, we'll call it. Sounds good, Joe. Thanks, guys. You be safe. John, Matt, be safe. Thank you. Thank you. See ya. See ya.